Welcome to Le Flaneur Politique with Dr. Michael DePercy. Don't forget to check out the show notes at politicalscience.com.au. Humans have enjoyed music since prehistoric times. But why do we enjoy it? Is it a choice? Or is it influenced by our society, our upbringing, our peers, our class, by technology? Today I interviewed Dr. Michael Walsh, a sociologist at the University of Canberra, and I asked him these questions. Hello, Michael. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Michael. How are you? I am well. So, Michael, I'd like to ask you a few questions today about sociology, about your profession, if you will. And what I'd like to ask you about is the sociology of music. To start off, tell me, what is sociology and what does it mean to be a sociologist? Okay, well, how long do I have to actually answer the question, I guess, is what I would say. Because I could probably talk about this subject for quite some time. Uh, But... The kind of general spiel I give about what sociology is, is essentially a discipline that is interested in social behavior. So sociologists really are kind of, I guess, want to understand how social actions, social structures, and even things like identity actually kind of are socially patterned. Uh, And so what I normally would say to students is that actually sociology is really interested in trying to find the meaning in certain things, whether that be politics, whether that be you know, somebody's identity, whether that be somebody's love of art or their association with technology. It's all about kind of the meaning that is invested in uh, those actual pursuits and practices. In terms of why I'm a sociologist or what, or what does it mean to be a sociologist? Uh, well, I guess I, I don't know. I've always been a curious person. Uh, and so in some respects, sociology was kind of the discipline that allowed me to pursue my own interests, which were kind of not necessarily neatly, I guess, channeled into a particular type of so it suits my personality type, I suppose. I guess a lot of sociologists tend to be somewhat contrarian as well. So maybe you should join us, actually, Michael, now that I think of it. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, being curious curious is important. But um, you mentioned art. But I, sure. One of the things I wanted to ask you about today was mm. actually music. Mm. And, and the reason I, I really wanted to speak with you on the podcast about that was that you are the only person I actually know <laughs> who not only knows of, but likes John Adams, who is my favorite composer. Oh, yeah. And, and when I sort of learned more about you and, the, and some of the work that you've done, particularly around the sociology of music, sure. I, I wanted to ask you, well, how does music actually fit in the sociology? But also, there's this thing called socio-musicology. What is that? Okay, uh, there's a couple of questions there. Uh, so the first question was, how does music kind of come to or being uh, engaged with in sociology. Yeah, right. So, uh, look, there's there's a, actually a really long tradition in sociology of people engaging with and thinking about music. Um, and so I'm thinking of people like, say, uh, Georg Zimmel, who's quite a kind of uh, 19th, uh, 20th century uh, uh, sociologist, um, but even people like Max Weber um, and... Uh, those types of actual classical sociologists, they were also interested in music. So there's this kind of, yeah, a a rich history, except I guess now in mainstream sociology, we we tended to to kind of forget about, I guess, music as a a type of um, thing to actually study. Uh, But there's been a big resurgence of it in the the last, say, 20 years around uh, sociologists actually engaging with music and doing a lot more kind of empirically grounded music, music research. So what do you mean by empirically grounded? Okay, so we have people like, uh, uh, so the critical theorists like uh, Theodore Adorno, who who kind of was intimately aware with music and musical culture of the 20th century, except um, Adorno was more of a kind of philosopher slash sociologist. So he really kind of used, I think, his own uh, perceptions and, and judgments of music as opposed to actually conducting 
really rigorously empirical research where he might go out and actually look at people engage with music and, and write up a report and then kind of you know publicize the findings of that report more like kind of what a, maybe a social psychologist would do in that respect so adorno certainly like did do those types of things uh but not not it wasn't his preferred style by any means right well look when i think of sociologists and being a political scientist sure. I, I think of max weber sure and, and so what, what has he got to do with the sociology music so he, he actually uh, wrote a really interesting uh, piece or book on uh, the, the sociology music. And uh, Weber's kind of, I guess, key idea that he kind of uh, went out try, uh, trying to, to explore was this idea of rationalisation, right? And so Weber thought that societies were becoming increasingly rationalised as they went down the path of modernity. And so he would say this in respect to work. He would say this in respect to our own kind of personal interactions, but he will also say this in respect to music. And um, and in that actual book, he talks about how the scales of music, so the actual musical notation that people use to write music, becomes rationalised over time. And he looks at this in an historical kind of context and actually says that, you know, uh, we get something called um, well-tempered um measurement in terms of our scale pitches and that is actually a sign of rationalization in music and so previously we would have you know harmonic scales and harmonic series in music which don't necessarily allow for a neat kind of modulation and transition of, of, of uh, key signatures but because of modernity being you know affecting not merely just your own work life but also artistic pursuits it also rationalizes that process as well um, and so it's really quite interesting. So he's actually, he's really searching for this idea of rationalization and how it's actually embedded in the structure of music in and of itself. Yeah, right, right. So that's, that's, that's quite what, yeah. I, what I was reading something about, um, I, I think it was Plato, I may be wrong, but I was reading mm-hmm. something that Plato said there were certain modes that yep. should be used for music and that's it, anything else was completely wrong. Oh, well, not just wrong, but banned. Banned, yeah. That, yeah and, right. and actually immoral and, and would actually lead people into ill... Ill, Ill repute and, and, and kind of lustful. I mean, who sin. would have thought that Plato was that kind of conservative? You know, he would have banned <laughs> Bob Dylan. You know? But, but what, what's interesting is that the, these different modes are very much cultural, like the Phrygian mode, for example, is sure. very much a sort of Middle Eastern Arabic yep. uh, 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 kind of thing. Uh, how does that sort of, does that matter today? Uh, well, I think it's, I think it shows you how diverse music actually really is when we look at it from a, from a perspective of a world context, right? But I think the type of music that we hear traditionally on the radio really is very conservative in the sense of the types of modality and um, microtonalities that are used in music today. So I think, I think um, you know, most people are very comfortable with standard kind of tona- uh, tonal uh, relationships and, and sounds. And when you start moving into kind of more, I guess, different types of, um, you know, microtones and, and, and kind of uh, different modes, it, it do- does, I think, put the listener in a deeper kind of um, hole. And if they're not comfortable with that, then they tend to, you know, don't like it. And, th- and this is why we have, you know, even in the 20th century with classical music, uh, certain types of music obviously being very popular, say somebody like maybe Shostakovich or, um, you know, Gershwin, and somebody like uh, Schoenberg, who, you know, didn't exactly attract all that many popular, popular following in terms of audiences. Right, right. <clears throat> so I want to ask you about, uh, and, and correct, correct my pronunciation here, Pierre Bourdieu. Bourdieu? Bourdieu? Yeah. Okay. So what, what I found interesting about him, and, and I only know a little bit about him sure. through a colleague who was doing a PhD on some of his work and, mm. and um, 
but I understand he was he was like this individual publishing machine. He just sort of wrote powerhouse. Wrote, yeah, just wrote an enormous amount of stuff. Yeah. One of the things that I, I noticed though was that he said something about the sociology of music, in that. And let me just quote him here. Uh, nothing more clearly affirms one's class. Nothing more infallibly classifies than tastes in music. And and I just wonder to what extent this is true. I mean, so I like Rose Tattoo, right? And ACDC. And when I was a kid, there was Kiss and ACDC. And this is in Penrith, right? So, we, you know, western suburbs of Sydney. Sure. Um, but I also love John Adams, Marla, Brahms, and Woody Allen, right? All of Woody Allen's soundtracks from his uh, movies, they're the greatest. And, and even Bob Dylan. Sure. So does that mean I'm a cashed up burner? <laughs> A board Jew would definitely say yes to that. No, <laughs> he probably wouldn't know what that meant. But no, uh, seeing that he's also deceased, it, it probably could be an issue. But no, Bourdieu, I think, uh, is interesting. I mean, the basis upon uh, which he stated that was actually a survey that he conducted in, I think, the 60s in France. So empirical evidence. Empirical evidence. I mean, he was very much influenced by continental philosophy at the same time, but he was driven by, he actually did conduct a survey. And that actual um, quote comes from a book called Distinction. Uh, and that book is really about charting how uh, something called cultural capital is actually closely connected to social but also um, economic capital. And so he's really interested being a neo-Marxist in actually seeing how class is a kind of a way in which um, determines to some extent people's uh, predilections for certain types of music, certain types of art, certain types of cultural practice. Now, there are some really interesting and insightful things that he says, but there are also some more complex and kind of, I guess, more contemporary manifestations like you were saying, where you like all different types of music, which doesn't necessarily neatly, I guess, work in that kind of actual analysis that he provides. But I guess what I would say is it's a different time that we are talking about. And I think we've become a little bit more self-aware with our musical tastes as well, that also could have an impact upon that. And actually the access to music now is quite different than it was previously. So to hear, uh, you know, a Shostakovich symphony or to hear a, um, you know, a Schoenberg whatever it was, um, you might have to actually know about it and actually actively go and seek, seek it out. Whereas today you can Google it and it's there at your fingertips. Yeah, I must say that's one of the greatest things about the internet is the access to the music. Uh, I remember as a kid, you'd wait for the one song to happen on some random radio station and you had to have the tape in ready to you know press record. Not that we did that illegally, of course. but No, of course not. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, yeah, so I mean, it, it's really made a difference. and. and I mean, one of the things I've used is that uh, there's a website called Taste Drive. It used to be called uh, Dive, sorry, Taste Dive. It used to be called TasteKid, tastekid.com or tastedive.com. And what's what's really good about this is you can enter in what you like and based on a crowd sort of sourcing uh, information, it gives you a list of other similar artists. And, sure. And that's, that's been a really interesting way to find new music. And, and finding new music can actually be quite difficult today because of that accessibility well there's no cd shop you can go to that neatly kind of captures the whole variety and range i mean that you you, you want even i realized this today so i i previously used to go to a couple of cd shops in sydney because i knew i could get a wide variety of different types of music and, and seek out new newer types of music that i hadn't become exposed to and that's those cd shops are no longer really around because the, the, the shift from CDs to actually streaming and online services is really pronounced. So it's, it's really having a big impact upon how people consume music. Yeah, and that worries me too, that you can go to Spotify, SoundCloud and so on. And so many artists are providing the music for free. Yep. And it, it's almost like... Well, Spotify is doing that. 
to well, some yeah, extent. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I suppose they're probably paying royalties in, in minuscule royalties. Yeah, yeah, in, right. in, in the case might be. Yeah. What, what worries me about that is that I mean, it's great for a consumer that you get things for free, obviously, but it's a, there's a bit of the free rider problem mm. there. Because, and sustainability question as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in the end, who would ever want to become a musician if you can't earn a living from it? Exactly. So, so in terms of these sorts of um, advances in technology and the the way the changes in the way that we consume music, if you will. Um, what what does this sort of mean from a sociological perspective? How does what does sociology tell us about these changes? Uh, well, I think uh, it, not so much was it, well, I wouldn't phrase the question like that. What I would say is I think sociology provides us with a mechanism to actually try and understand how the shift and what the shifts are actually going um, to do in terms of music consumption, because I think. It actually requires a lot more um, empirical and, and kind of uh, research in this space. And that's because I think the changes that have gone on with kind of shifting from CD to, to streaming to, um, you know, uh, Apple Music, all of these changes have, changes have happened relatively quickly. And I think there's really um, a lot of kind of scope to actually try and engage with that further. And, and that's actually part of what my research is going to go forward to investigate because I, I you know normatively I have a bit of an issue with uh, say streaming services because I do feel as though it almost provides um, the listener with just what they are anticipating so it's driven by algorithmic kind of decision making in terms of you know you'll like this so you probably also will like this as well right so, so when you say normative I immediately think you're talking about the way something ought to be that's correct ideal. yes so are you still sort of saying it's normative from the point of view of the producer that they no I'm saying that my my um, has and reluctance around that actual change in how people engage with music. I'm saying I think that's problematic, but I'm saying that is a normative position from my perspective as a researcher because I actually would like to investigate it to make sure that that's actually what's actually happening on the ground because because my kind of hypothesis is that it's actually probably a meaning that listeners become much more um, I guess uh, codependent upon these algorithms rather than being thrown in the deep end and actually being able to experience something with open ears rather than saying oh that doesn't sound like what I've previously heard so therefore I'm just not going to listen to it because that's the danger right where we actually become really homogenized as listeners where we're really actually only interested and engaging with things that we're familiar with and that to me is that would be an indictment upon you know culture yeah, immediately i think of kid rock and that song where he got two popular songs and sort of crammed them together mm. and it became a hit because mm. he got two hits and just made some other hit and there are other songs where the, the artists actually got no royalties because they'd used you know phrases from other popular or previously popular uh, songs yeah and, and yeah that bothers me too because there seems to be this whole sort of uh, the, the, there's a, apparently there's a handful of producers who know exactly what sells mm. and they just pick people that fit the bill and stick them in and it's almost like you know back to back in Kylie Minogue's day with the stock Aitken and Waterman sure. and Rick Astley you know you just have the drum machine in the background and, and the singer's irrelevant but they still <laughs> make money and, and that sort of bothers me because it seems to take the talent away but what about this idea that these algorithms and computers can actually replicate what Beethoven did and therefore humans are going to be irrelevant to music? Yeah, well, that's that's a really interesting question. And I guess I'm a bit of a romanticist when it comes to uh, to that kind of uh, statement because I, I, I and also quite cynical in that respect too because I, I don't think it's actually feasible. Um, and, you know, th there's been recent... Uh, 
tests and trials around uh, robots conducting orchestras and various other things, which I think have shown that, you know, the ability to actually replicate what musicians do is actually beyond the reach of robotics currently, but I think will be for, I don't know, for a very long time. And that's just because of the actual artistic practice, the communicative ability that musicians require. And it's just, it seems to be too far um, a a reach to actually really, um, to to leap, I suppose I would say. But, um, you know, it's also the question about what actually music should be, right? If it's something, you know, that we are using to get through our day, to work to, to work out to, if we're doing exercise, that that's fine, right? I'm not trying to say that we, we need music for one specific purpose. But I guess what I'm saying is that the more we kind of uh, wedded into this, you know, Apple Music, I just listen to what I like or what I'm being told to like, the, the concern is that it means that, you know, the, the diversity of types of music out there diminishes. And that, I think, for me, is is the concern. So you said why you became a sociologist. Yep. Why did you get into the sociology of music? Uh, well, uh, because I really enjoyed music from a very early age. And I've always been very um, engaged with music, even just from a listening perspective. When my grandmother um, passed away, I inherited her gramophone with her collection of various old records. <laughs> Uh, and I can remember listening through the various, uh, they were mostly classical, some jazz um, albums as well, uh, and just listening to, to those records and kind of getting acquainted with a very different sound. Because I was a child of the 80s, so my, my father actually had a CD player and, and he was a bit of an audiophile, uh, but it was actually through my grandmother's gramophone a couple of years later when it really was that kind of, oh, okay, this is, this is another world of music that I haven't really been exposed to. Uh, because up until that point, it was mostly Triple M, which was back in the day, very much kind of your mainstream rock channel. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting, even my own journey and how that yeah, my, my journey to music is, is kind of impacted upon um, then my interest in music as an academic. Uh, and I think, you know, just to, you know, round off that kind of conversation, it's actually, you know, how music helps and assists and um, keeps people engaged throughout their daily lives. And that's what I'm kind of right, quite interested in and demonstrating that in, in my own research. So let me, let me ask you, um, uh, I'll ask you in a minute what music you like and why, but before I do that, well, that's I, a I want bad to ask question. you, do you see yourself enjoying the music you like on the basis of the European critical theory or is it based on rational choice theory? Well, I'm, I'm more familiar with the critical theory of the, you know, the other critical, critical theorist Adorno um, than the, the rational choice theory. Uh, but no, I, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't really use that frame as a way to kind of um, engage with, with music or, or, or say what I like about music. And I think that's just because actually music is more of an emotional thing at its most base level. Uh, and I'm not saying that it's just emotional, but I think there's, there is a component that is that it's about, about that emotionality that connects people. Uh, and, you know, Adorno didn't really talk about that in a very positive way. And, in fact, he talks about it in a very negative way. He, he actually says that emotionality in listening to music is actually a bit of a problem, uh, which, is, which is, you know, a, a bit of a, again, normative claim to make. Uh, but, you know, uh, I, 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 I wouldn't necessarily agree with that position. So... Right, so this critical theory is looking at all of those aspects about the human side of music that we like. Mm. 
But does that mean then rational choice theory is about someone listening to Katy Perry? So in effect, they're an, an economist persona waiting to buy the next contrived musician's work? Maybe. Um, I, I don't actually, to be honest, don't really know much about rational choice theory. So I, I'm not sure how to, how to kind of use yeah, right. it. Yeah, look, I threw a few comments. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, because it's something that really bothers me, but at the same time, whenever we get bothered about these things, I mean, if you look at the hipster movement, people are going back to typewriters, mm. and, and we have these sort of crazy reactions when this, we overreach with technology or we overreach with trying to contrive things, and sure. you know, people crave that sort of, you know, well, look at you know, tree changes and sea sure. changes, and so, you know, it's becoming quite sort of common, so... Yeah, I, I think there's something, though, about the material in that as well like the materiality of engaging with music because like hipsters for instance it, i think there is you know wanting to get the record right wanting to get the physical artifact and there is something interesting about that because we're moving increasingly to non-material kind of means of in- engaging so streaming's non non-material right um, and netflix non-material it's all kind of all there you don't have to get the cd or the oh, dvd right, yeah, so it's, so it's non-material. yeah 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 so it's it's all about kind of the whole the object that you're actually engaging with becomes almost um, disappears and then you, you you know so you don't have the thing to latch onto you don't have the collection to show your friends right and the same with reading right kindles so i'm i'm a bit of a i guess luddo when it comes to kindles as well i actually like books uh and the physical artifact uh and you know, I, I, I have to say, I think there's something about the engagement that does change when it's not in front of you. Like when you don't either, you know, can't look at the album cover or, the, you know, the book actually where you remember in physically where it was in that part of the book or whatever it might happen to be. I think there is a component of how the materiality impacts upon engagement and it affects music, it affects literature, and I think it also affects even things like film. So Yeah, right. And it's interesting how it comes back to, I remember... Uh, must have been around 1986 or seven. Def Leppard had uh, a picture disc. It was a 12-inch version of um, Pour Some Sugar On Me or something like that. <laughs> and I had it, you know, and in the end I thought, ah, oh, no one needs these records anymore, you know, because we've got CDs and I threw it out. And I saw a copy of it um, about six months ago and it was $250 mm-hmm. to buy this this picture disc. Sure. You know? So interesting how that sort of, people are starting to, and I find this too. I mean, records are a bit of bit of a pain because thirty minutes and you've got to keep turning it over. Yep. But but you know, so it's not the sort of thing you want to have playing where you're trying to organise a party or something. Yeah. But but at the same time, there's something about that scratchy sound that um, we we miss. Mm-hmm. And when it's again, this is like overproduction or something. Mm. Does sociology have any sort of ways to explain why we react against the technology? Uh, well, yeah, it, it does in the sense that I think sociologists are very much interested in how people engage with certain types of technology and also the the uh, the morality involved with those technologies, right? And so there's often um, reversions against certain types of technologies for fear of them displacing people. Uh, and so there's a long kind of history of, of, of that being something quite um, obvious in, in kind of, you know, historical studies of labour, but also yeah. even in, you know, artistic practice too. I, th- I think of the uncanny valley. Have you heard of that concept? That freaks me out, you know, like mannequins just freak me out. Because <laughs> it's in between. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's what worries me with that contrived music. It's sort of like it's not really human. Whereas if you have like, you know, Bob Dylan with a harmonica and a guitar, it's very raw, it's very real. And but it's a person. 
right? And, and, and it has a humanity. The artist has a humanity. And it's kind of like when you have algorithms writing essays, right? Or, or other, or building, or, you know, algorithms building structures like architectural facades and things. Like there's a question around, well, we shape the environment that we're within, right? We, through culture, that's what we do as humans, right? We we're, look at the world, look how, how much we've kind of impacted the face of the earth, uh, for better or worse for that matter. But I mean, and I think, you know, that's something that we we can't just deride or not actually pay attention to, at least as sociologists, because that's, that's kind of really important and significant, I would say. What if I deliberately try not to like contrived music, if I can call it that? Is that, is that me sort of, you know, um, wanting more of the human in music? Or is this just my Bourdieuian uh, newfound class speaking? Well, I mean, I think you don't like, well, contrived music, but we're calling it what, robotic music, is that right? I'm just thinking of, you know, music that's made to sell as opposed to oh, okay. music that's meant to be what, you know, music in its prehistoric sense. Well, I think I think maybe maybe there's something to that. But another way to think about it too is maybe that you're, you're actually kind of, you've exposed yourself to multiple forms of music that you're actually quite comfortable in and a variety of a, a prolifer, you know a variety of different types of music whereas the person that only listens to the very narrow kind of music is only comfortable with that and i think you realize the kind of diversity and the thing that you're missing out when you actually only go back to that one thing i suppose in, in some respects right right well so to finish up i just want to ask you what music do you like and why? Okay. Uh, I, I, you know, like lots of different types of music. Uh, but if I had to, if you were forced, who would be your number one artist or I, composer or whatever? Well, I have a couple of images up on my wall, so maybe I should talk about those people. I don't know. Yeah, sure. So I have an image of Gustav Mahler uh, and I have an image of Philip Glass, uh, actually a painting of Philip Glass. So I, I quite like those two um, composers quite a lot. Uh, and though, and that's mainly because I think they were just very creative and ingenious with what they were able to produce and are able to produce. Philip Glass, of course, is still alive. Um, you know, but I also like other types of music as well, uh, more modern stuff. But you have a picture of uh, Bernstein, so I do have a picture of Leonard Bernstein as well. Yeah, so tell me about Bernstein. Well, he was he was also a composer as well. Uh, he's not really known for his uh, compositions so much, but. Uh, he's conducting is the thing that he's quite well known for but he actually struggled very much with his compositions because he was such in high demand as a, as a composer and so um but he his work is really interesting and, and he's intimately influenced by Mahler as well and there's a very interesting thing where when you learn the histories and stories of different composers of the 20th century they're they're all kind of very intimately aware of each other's works and and you all you, you hear the interconnections you hear the inflections of different you know composers influences in other people's works like you were like um, john adams for instance you can hear Mahler and john adams yeah, very easily and you know? exactly yeah. and you can hear glass. Yeah, yeah exactly and you can hear you know um oh, you can hear lots of wagner and Mahler, right and and there's 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 lots of kind of uh, you know, emulation and, and kind of um, connection between all of these different forms of music. And so, look, and that's one of the things I think about music that is really interesting and engaging is that whole, um, the, the kind of, the way in which you, it makes you want to kind of go down the rabbit hole and, and see the connections and see how everything's kind of linked together and, and kind of have a, have a think about that for yourself, I suppose, and, and make your own, own assumptions and guesses about that. Thanks for joining me on the show, Michael. It was a pleasure. 